had a wrestling coach in high school that uh, had a lot of interesting quotes he had. Most of them I could never repeat in church, but he... He was a very interesting man, and, and I remember whenever you would lose a match or you'd be hurt or something, he had this great phrase where he'd say, oh, your mommy still loves you. And that, he didn't really mean it in a nice way, but I did believe that my mom did love me. And, I, and, and you know, a lot of us were raised in homes where our moms really loved us. My mom was amazing, and she's the only one that listens to my sermons online, so I've got to say something nice about her. But, uh, but I remember when we were little and talking about wrestling, wrestling's one of those sports, if you ever watched it as a, as a fan, it's, it's really difficult to watch and, and trying to help. And my mom, when she watched us boys, she had three boys, she was the oldest of, of four girls, and then she had three boys, and, but she adjusted well, and she had her three boys in wrestling, and, and whenever she would watch us wrestle, she had this ability to twist and move, and she would almost fall out of the bleachers trying to, trying to help us in some way, and, and then my oldest brother, he actually, he dislocated his shoulder um, when he was wrestling, which is kind of a, a bad injury, and it really bothered my mom, and, and so after, after that, Whenever one of us would get in a situation while my mom was watching where our arms were above my, our head, she had this really loud scream, and she would scream, Stop the match! Stop the match! <clears throat> Which obviously is a little embarrassing when you're actually wrestling, but, but I never doubted that she loved me. Never one time did I doubt that. And, and, and growing up with her influence, she read to us all the time. She filled me with biblical knowledge. She, she was my, my faith. She was the rock of my faith. And I love that about her. And uh, so there we go. Mom, I hope you enjoy that. <laughs> uh, today, as we celebrating moms, we're also going to be celebrating faith and the heroes of the faith. And I want to start with Hebrews 11, verse 1, talking about faith. And it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so here's this definition of faith, this, this confidence in what we're hoping for. And this assurance about what we can't even see. And so, so that is the definition of faith. The rest of chapter 11 is just full of names and stories of people of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. All these different people. And, and there's 17 actual names listed in, those, in this faith chapter. Then he says, plus the prophets. So there's a whole bunch of others thrown in there. And of all those people listed, there's only two women. That are mentioned in here. One of them, Sarah, who's Moses' wife, who actually laughed when God said she was going to have a baby in her 90s, yet she's still listed in the faith chapter. And the other one is Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, is listed in the faith chapter. And, and it goes through all these, but only two women. And, and, and today I want to point out two women that, in my opinion, should be listed as heroes of the faith. We can look at them that way for sure, but it's Ruth and Naomi. And, and, and this is an amazing story. The book of Ruth is based on Ruth and Naomi. And, and it's four, it's just four chapters. It's kind of a short book. It's kind of easy to read. It, but it's a story about two women, really two moms, that lived very difficult lives, but faithful lives. And, and it's really, it's a picture of how God works in the intricate details of our lives. 
And so Ruth 1.1 starts out like this. In the days that the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came over the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. This is actually kind of a dark time in Israel's history. And, and the judges ruled, which some were good and some weren't so good. Israel spent a lot of time... Uh, falling away from God, and they would come back. But not only at this point is the government necessarily not that great, but there's a famine in the land. And so it forces Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, to move away. And so here they live in Bethlehem, and a famine's come, and they, they can't produce for their family. And so they have to move to kind of a mountainous country of Moab. And Moab not only was a foreign land, but it was also an enemy of Israel. And just interesting enough, Abraham's nephew is actually was Moab. That's where the Moabites came from, is from Abraham's nephew, Lot's son. And, and so you have these people that are actually pagans. They're, they don't worship the one true God. And here, Elimelech and Ruth and their two sons, they move to Moab. And, and, and they get here in this foreign land, and not after a, a very long time, Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband, dies. And leaves her alone with her two boys. But as time goes by, the two sons get married. And they married Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah and Ruth. But another ten years go by, and the two sons pass away. Now, this is tragic in this day and time. So, so now you have, you have Naomi and her two sons-in-law. You have Ruth and you have Orpah. And they have no man. And now, in today's world, that's a different thing. But back then, as a woman, you cannot provide for yourself. You can't own anything unless you have a man. And so now, Naomi finds her in a, herself in a place. They've moved away to this foreign land. Her husband and now her two sons die, and she has no way to provide for herself. And so at this point, she decides that she needs to move back to Bethlehem, back to where her family is from. And so as she prepares to move back, she actually encourages Ruth and Orpah to stay because they're Moabites. And so this is their land. They have relatives there. They know this place. And, and so they can actually start families again. They're still young. But Naomi's looking at herself. She's older. She probably can't have kids now. And she's thinking, I'll go back and figure it out. But you two stay here. And, and now, Although Naomi's trying to do the right thing, she's in a pretty rough place. And you can imagine how she would feel. This is what she says in Ruth 1, 20 and 21. She says, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Myra. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. I went away full, and I'm coming home empty. She's in this place of despair. She's in this place that she can't even provide for herself or for her family. And so here she is telling them, hey, you stay. She's, even though she's in a bad place, she's still trying to do the right thing, encouraging her daughter-in-laws to stay. And Orpah, she decides to stay. And no, that's fine. That's a good decision for her. She stays to start a new family or whatever. But Ruth, who the book is named after, she makes this this pledge to her mother-in-law, not just to her mother-in-law, but also the God of her mother. And listen to what she says in Ruth 1.16. Don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, 
I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What a statement. What a statement of faith. And, and not only is she saying, hey, mother-in-law, now everyone in this room, you may have had mother-in-law problems, but you've at least heard about people that have mother-in-law problems. And, and here, Ruth is saying, hey, mother-in-law, I am committed to you. I will stay with you. And, and this is a huge thing. Not only is she saying, I'm going to be committed to you, but I'm going to take on your faith. I'm going to believe in the God that you believe in. She grew up in, in Moab. She, she didn't believe in the one true God, but here she's taking on this faith, this beautiful moment. And now Naomi and her faithful daughter-in-law, Ruth, they move back to Bethlehem. But, but here's the problem that just moving back to where they're from doesn't make things any better. Because Naomi can go back there, and there's land in her family. Her husband still has land. When, when Elimelech moved away, he would have had land in Bethlehem that his family owned. But when he moved away, he would have still had the rights to it. But he didn't come back. Just Naomi did. Naomi has no rights to the land without a husband. And, and, and so even though she's moving back, she still can't provide for her and Ruth. She still, they don't really have a place to go except into this community that she knows people. And so when she gets there, Ruth immediately goes to work for her mother and says, hey, I'm going to start gathering some food. Here's what she says in Ruth chapter 2. It says, one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And now I want you to understand what's actually happening here. She's, she's going out into the fields, and there are servants out there, and they're collecting the grain for the owner of the field. And now, Ruth has no right to pick up the grain or collect the grain. All she can do is follow behind the servants, and if they accidentally drop some grain, and they might do it on purpose, they might not, but that's the only right she has is to collect the grain behind the servants. That's what she's doing to make a living. She's literally begging to make a living. And so she's going out and doing this. Now it so happens that when she's out there, she is in the field of a man named Boaz. And this is really good news in some ways because Boaz is a relative of Naomi. And so there's a little connection here. And so as Ruth is out in the field, Boaz sees her. Now, as the owner of the field, he could have said, hey, you know, you don't belong here. You can't collect these grain. Get on out of here. But he watched her working. He said, this, this woman is a good woman. She's working hard. He'd heard about, or heard about Ruth, and he'd heard about what Ruth had done for Naomi. So he showed kindness to her. He actually gave her food and said, hey, you can come back anytime. You can, you can gather stuff for, for you and Naomi. So he's very kind to her, shows her some kindness. But still, there's, that's it, right? So then when uh, Boaz is, has a really high opinion of Ruth right off the bat, but as Ruth goes back home, Naomi is so excited. She goes back and says, hey, I was out in Boaz's field. Do you remember Boaz? Oh, I know Boaz. He's a close relative. And there's this excitement, and, and this is what she said. She says, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives. He is one, one of our kinsmen redeemers. That word, kinsman redeemer, is a prominent part of this story. 
Now, to us, if someone is kin, that means you live in Arkansas or something. We don't talk about kin. But, but a family redeemer is really what it is. A family redeemer, family redeemer is a male. It's a male relative that takes on the responsibility or could be the privilege to take it on for a relative that's in danger or needs help or is in some sort of trouble. And, and so a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer is there to rescue them or save them. And so you can see why Naomi is so excited here. She can't own the land that she has rights to unless there's a male involved. There's a man that then she can have the rights to this land. And so now Ruth continues to go back and gather grain and work and, and her and Naomi begin to work out a plan. And after a while, they come up with kind of a bold plan. And, and you have to understand this is a day and time and I've mentioned it a few times, but women didn't have rights in this day and time. I mean, this is thousands and thousands of years ago. They didn't have rights. And, and a woman could not approach a man. A woman couldn't ask a man on a date. That, that wasn't acceptable. And, but the plan that Naomi and Ruth come up with is that Ruth is going to go and go to where Boaz is sleeping, and she's going to go in and lay at his feet while he's sleeping. Incredibly inappropriate in that day and time. But she does it because they're desperate. They need help. That they need the kinsman redeemer. So she lays at Boaz's feet. He wakes up in the night. He sees Ruth. He goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and she says, I need you to marry me. Pretty bold, right? <laughs> I need you to be my kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is so impressed with her that he literally says, okay, I'm going to do this. But there's still one relative that's actually closer to me. So we have to at least go to him. And so Boaz takes it upon himself to go to this other relative and say, hey, there's this woman, Ruth, that if you would marry her, then that would give Naomi the rights to her land back, and that would, that would save them. You'd be their kinsman redeemer. And the man finds out that Ruth is a foreigner, and he wants nothing to do it, so he turns her down. And so Boaz steps in. And Boaz makes this decision to become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. And what's amazing about it is Ruth was a complete outsider. She didn't grow up there. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. And yet she was so bold and so loyal. And you can just see the faith that she has in God. And you remember what she said to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. You see, you have to understand, Ruth could have stayed in Moab. She would have found another man. Her life would have been probably better in the short term, but she was faithful to Naomi. She was faithful to Naomi's God. What is amazing about this book that's in the Old Testament, we probably don't read it very often, maybe don't hear it very often because it's very simple, in all reality, it's kind of a mundane story. It's not super important in the history of the world, right? I mean, this stuff probably happened all the time in Ruth's day. It was probably going on all the time. There could have been hundreds of these stories, and, and there was no miracles. There was no battles won. It was just everyday life. That's what happened. <laughs> and in the very final scene at the very end of chapter 4, uh, Boaz and Ruth get married, and they have a son. The son's name is, is Obed. And Naomi is 
joyful. You can imagine she has a grandson. There's this excitement now. And, and, and even the other women in town, which you remember Naomi wouldn't have really fit in very well with, but now that she has a kinsman redeemer, she's together with these women. And listen to how the women rejoice. In Ruth 4, 14 and 15, it says, Praise the Lord, who has provided a redeemer for your family, May this child be famous in Israel. I just want us to remember those words. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. It's really a beautiful ending to a story. It's, it's a good story, a little simple. But then it ends with a genealogy. And the genealogy says this, uh, Salmon and his father Boaz, or was the father of Boaz. Boaz, who we've been talking about, was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Now, how cool is that? We all know David, right? King David, you know, warrior David. David wrote the Psalms. I mean, he's the man after God's own heart. This is David, right? And, and, and this guy, Obed, is the grandfather of David. How cool is that? May your name be famous in Israel. Well, his name wasn't necessarily famous, but his grandson was David. Well, what, what a cool thing. And, and then, not only was he the grandson or the grandfather of David, but really this story is more of a foreshadowing of Jesus. Because obviously the line of David, as you go through the line of David, comes to Jesus. So Obed, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth, they're all part of this story that leads to Jesus. And you understand, Jesus was our family redeemer. He was our kinsman redeemer. He, he gives us the right not to land on earth, but he gives us the right to heaven. We get to become part of the family of God. We get to, the right to be children of God because of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus. <laughs> and, and you just... Look at this story, the, the faith of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It extends all the way to us today, thousands of years later, which takes me back to Hebrews chapter 11, faith. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for. We hope for heaven. It gives us that confidence and assurance about what we do not see. You know, I believe that the story of Ruth gives us this picture of how God works in the most intricate part of our lives. Those daily mundane details, day in and day out, the relationships or, or hardships or marriages or family responsibilities, you can see how God works in every detail of our lives. And it encourages us to view our day-to-day -day life as something way more than just mundane, but God's story. And, and you see Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they got to participate in God's story, not for anything they did, but simply because they had faith. <laughs> we all have stories of faith in our, in our families. I just uh, was thinking this week about when I was in college. Um, 
I was getting ready to go into my senior year of college, which was actually my fifth year for me because I was a little slower than most people. But, but I was going into my, my fifth year, my senior year, and I was going to be a I was going to be a pastor, and and uh, I was doing an internship at a church in Wichita, Kansas. It was about three hours from my house, and, and and I was so excited about that summer, and then going into my last year, I was ready to get out of college, and and I was actually engaged to be married, and I'd gone down to this church that that. My fiance and her family were part of that church, and, and, and I went there excited about being a, a youth pastor down there, and, and it, was a, it was a good summer in that aspect, but as summer was going on, um, I started really having this, this feeling that I could not marry the girl that I was engaged to, that there was just something off, and I don't know what it was, but man, I would spend nights praying and praying, God, what are you doing to me? I thought I was supposed to marry this girl, but I didn't feel this way anymore. And, and I was going through all this turmoil, and, and I, I knew the wedding was coming up, and I was thinking, what am I, I can't, I can't do this. And so I was going through all this turmoil. And meanwhile, at uh, the same time, Lisa, my wife, she uh, was in Topeka, Kansas, in a very different place. She just had, had her first child, Gracie. And uh, uh, the boy that she was dating there during that time, she admittedly knew she shouldn't be dating him, wasn't a great guy. And she's going through this turmoil. She's got this brand new baby. And it's the summer of 1993. I'll just age myself there. The summer of 1993. And I'm, I'm in Wichita. She's in Topeka. And she is going to bed one night. And, and she begins to have these thoughts. And it's like God was saying to her, what if? What if the guy you're supposed to marry is about to make a bad decision or about to marry the wrong person? And she starts praying in the summer of 1993. I went, she keeps praying that over and over and over again. Now, I went back to school, and, and in that fall, I finally had enough courage that I was going to call off the wedding. And, and, and I remember the thing I was most worried about was calling my mom and telling my mom that I had to call off the wedding. And I, I called my mom, and I said, Mom, I, I got some news for you. And I said, I'm, I'm going to have to call off the wedding. And my mom's response was, oh, thank God. <laughs> and immediately I was like, whew, okay, I'm doing the right thing. You fast forward about a year and a half, and I'm at a school, uh, I graduated mid-America, was going back to take some classes, and I'm there, and, and Lisa and I run into each other on campus, and we knew each other from before, we chat a little bit, she goes off to the library, I go to class, and while I'm sitting in class, I was like, I've got to go find that girl, I've got to find her, so I got up from class, left early, went to the library, I found Lisa, asked her on a date, year and a half later, or a year later, just a little over a year, we're married. And you look at that story, and, and it, was, it was a couple months after we started dating when Lisa started telling me this story about how she started praying, and I'm looking at the timeline, going, that's what happened. Thank you, Lisa, <laughs> for praying for me. What a story of how God allowed her. Because for faith, to participate in his plan. 
All of us have these stories of faith of how God allows us to participate in his day-to-day activities. Every single one of us. God is alive and active in our lives. And as you read through the faith chapter, I encourage you to do it because it's inspiring. And as you read through it, you'll hear, by faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith, all these people. Some did great things. Others were sodden too. It wasn't all good. But by faith, they were acting. By faith, they were acting. And they were part of God's plan. And when you get to the end of that, and it goes into Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 starts off with this picture of all these men and women of faith. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and all these people are in this cloud of witnesses just watching us. They're watching us participate in this continued story of redemption. And I just want to read to you, it's actually from the version of the Bible, the message. Uh, But I want to read to you just the first three verses of chapter 12 of Hebrews. And please keep in mind, all these men and women of faith, and you know them. They're, They're in your lives too. They're your mom and dad. They're your grandfathers. They're your friends. It says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way. All these veterans cheering us on. It means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed that exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, the cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. When we hear the stories of faith, of people that have gone before us, that should shoot adrenaline into our souls and grab a hold of our faith. Our faith in the God that loved us so much that he sent a redeemer for us so that we have the right to heaven. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the story. We thank you for the history the men and women of faith that that were just inspiring. And we thank you that we get to participate in your story and be part of your plan. We thank you for our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, who saved us, rescued us, so that we can live with you forever. We just pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.